Let's sing for the Lord. Heard about old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. Well, there I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory. Pray the Lord. 
nearer my God to thee. We have only been made nearer to our God through Jesus Christ. That is why the incarnation of Jesus is very important to our salvation. God became flesh that we may be nearer to God. So we are only nearer to God because of our union with Christ, who is God, who is also man. That's God's plan. That's God's purpose. Praise him for his wisdom. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy presence to sing as all the denizens of heaven, holy, holy, holy. Your name is holy, Lord, I pray. And may your name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord, that we, by the teaching of your word, we exalt your son, because this is his word, and he has to teach us by his spirit if we are to understand anything. So, Lord, I pray that you would open the scriptures to us this morning, that we may have an understanding of the work of your son in our own salvation to understand how the different parts of your work are connected and how they find fulfillment in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray and thank you for your word that you have preserved for us. May we always come to your word whenever we have need to know the things of Christ. May we always go to our knees and ask for illumination, ask for understanding of your word. Lord, we pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in John 5. Brother Robert would want us to be in John 6. There's a lot of interesting theology in John 6. A lot of very good theology, excellent theology in John chapter 6. But the Lord has not taken me there yet. Sometime next month, I'm sure we are going to be in John 6. And John 6 has 71 verses. So you know what's going to happen. We are in John 5, verses 45 to 47. And this is our sermon number 3 that we've been working from this part of the chapter because it's an important chapter and these are important words for us to understand about Moses and what role Moses plays, what role the law plays, what role the old covenant plays in the history of salvation. And if we don't understand the role of Moses, the role of the law, then we are bound to do and say things that do not honor Christ. We are bound to say, well, Christians are still under the law, and these things have to be properly defined because 
It could mean anything and everything. What do we mean when we say Christians are not under the law? We are saying Christians are not under the old covenant. The old covenant of Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments are the heart of Mount Sinai. And we are not saying the Ten Commandments are bad. Apostle Paul never taught anyway that the commandments are bad. The commandments are the commandments of God. They are holy, they are good, and they are just. But the problem is you and I, we are sinners, we can't do them. So we have to be given a way to serve God that is better than trying to observe the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments. Because it's not just the Ten Commandments that are moral. You find out that if you read Moses, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, you're going to find a lot more moral laws that we're given. But the New Testament has very clear teaching on the function of the law and what the law was supposed to do and whether the law continues past the arrival of Jesus or whether we come under a different law, which is the law of Christ, which a lot of the apostles in the New Testament are going to say, this is the law of Christ, love thy neighbor as thyself. So when we are saying the believer is not under the law of Moses, we are not saying they are going to go hog wild and go crazy. The believer is still under the law of Christ. Which law of Christ works by the power of the Holy Spirit? So Jesus, again here, we are just expanding these words because it is the same theology that we are going to find taught in different parts of the New Testament. Jesus again says here in John 5, 45-47, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So the title of our sermon is going to be, If You Believe Moses, Part 3, You Have Died to Moses, You Have Died to the Law. As I said, there are a lot of professing Christians who want to play fast and loose with the law. And they mean well, just like the Jews before them, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They are being ignorant of the righteousness of God, which is only by faith in Christ. They are not agreeing with the New Testament teaching on the matter. They are not agreeing with Moses himself and are not in agreement with Jesus. They say a Christian is saved to be under the law and thus the law is supposed to still be binding on the conscience of blood-bought Christians. They say come to Jesus so that Jesus can take you back to Moses. No, it is Moses who leads you to Christ, not Christ to Moses. 
it is Moses who testifies of Christ. And if people believed, that is understood what Moses was writing then and even now, they would believe that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. These people also are underestimating the work of the Holy Spirit to work obedience in God's people. The Holy Spirit is our new governor in the hearts of God's people. These people are also having a problem, as far as I'm concerned, of having a very low view of the unbendable requirements of the law because if the law has to be law, it has to continue to require 100% obedience. But in the book of John, the Lord Jesus came and said, if one understood Moses, if one understood the law, the old covenant, if they understood it correctly, they would not continue to want to be under Moses. Moses was not supposed to stay forever. And that is the teaching that we are going to extract from the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses had a temporary function. However, it was a very important function in the salvation history. His purpose, like we've been learning, was to lead people to Christ by teaching them about their inability to obey the law, but also in prophesying the coming of the one who would deliver them from the curse of that law. And this morning, I'm going to illustrate the discontinuity of the law of Moses, the law of the old covenant, with the transfiguration of Christ. And I'm also going to illustrate that with the teaching of the schoolmaster, the tutor, the one that we talked about in Galatians 3, the corrections officer. And we are also going to illustrate the discontinuity of the law of Moses with the teaching of marriage in Romans 7. So we are going to use those three to illustrate that the law has no more authority on one who believes in Christ. And in all these three cases, or any other case where this is discussed, Jesus is at the center and is the reason for the cessation or discontinuity. The Transfiguration, Matthew 17, verse 1 to 8. The Transfiguration of Jesus, Matthew 17, verse 1 to 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, 
Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell first down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. What are we to learn from this experience? Moses stood for the law. Because he's the one who was given the law. And Elijah stood for the prophets. What did Jesus say about the law and the prophets after his resurrection? In Luke 24, 27, we are told, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets. So the whole Old Testament is called Moses and the prophets. Or the law and the prophets. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the law and the prophets had Christ concealed. Christ was hidden in them. And now he comes to open them up to the reality of what they taught and pointed to. And our Peter here, by attempting to build the three tabernacles, one for the Lord, one for Elijah, and one for Moses, was attempting to equate Jesus, Elijah, and Moses and say they are equal. Peter had attempted to give relevance to the law beyond what God had intended to go with it. Remember, even Moses himself, the representative of the law, could not take the children of Israel into the promised land. And all those who were adults when the law was given at Mount Sinai also perished. They could not go into Canaan. They could not even go into Canaan with the law. And so God cut Peter off. God cut Peter off just as he was still speaking. He had tried to give Moses and the law continuity and equal importance with Jesus. But as it were, God rebuked him and showed them by three perfect weaknesses that the law and the prophets stood only to point to Christ and they ended there. God spoke to Peter and said, not so fast, Peter. Just as he was in the middle of talking. Jesus is not the same as the law and the prophets. He comes to fulfill them. He brings a new law. Jesus is the higher and better lawgiver. He is the new and higher prophet. He is God himself. So he 
This is what God did to teach them that the law had its fulfillment in Christ. He overshadowed the representatives of the law and the prophets with a cloud. Then what did he do next? Listen to verse 5. Verse 5 of Matthew 17. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. There was a threefold witness. Threefold witness here of the supremacy of Christ over the law and the prophets and their cessation. In Hebrew, three is also the number of what? Of completion, perfection, just as seven is. The Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God comes and he gives a threefold witness, perfect witness of who Christ is. Number one, God glorified Christ and not Moses or Elijah. Verse 2. Look at verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. Christ was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Jesus is the one who was transfigured. He was changed into another form, into a glorious form. Basically, Jesus opened himself up that they may see his glory. He had his glory with him, but they could not see it. It was veiled to them. Number two, God overshadowed them. He overshadowed Moses and Elijah by the cloud. Remember, Jesus does not need witness of man. He testifies of himself by his own glory, and also the Father testifies of him. So this is very consistent with the teaching of Jesus that we've been learning in John. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the overshadowing of Moses and Elijah is saying the law and the prophets have to decrease in the face of Christ. Remember the spirit of Elijah is the same spirit that was on John the Baptist. And if the spirit on John the Baptist says he must decrease that Christ may increase Elijah who has the same spirit also has to decrease in the face of Christ. Number three, witness. The words of God the Father. He spoke and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Don't listen to Moses. Listen to him. And Moses also in Deuteronomy 18, I believe, had said the same thing and said God was going to raise another prophet like him and they should listen to him. Moses had glory 
But his glory was a fading glory. The glory of Moses was the glory of the moon with respect to the sun. The moon has no light of its own. Whatever light it has is just a reflection of the light from the sun. It is the sun that actually possesses the light. Genesis 1.16 Then God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God was already preaching the gospel by that statement. Listen to this. The moon only possesses the reflection. But it is not the source of light. The moon left to itself is a dark place. But when Jesus comes, he comes as the son of glory who possesses the glory of God himself. Jesus' face was shining like that of the sun and his garments became as white as light. What is that saying? It is saying Jesus is he to whom all these other things pointed and they find their fulfillment and end in him. And now that he has come, we do not deal with the moon anymore. We do not deal with the shadows, but the real and actual substance. And to try and go back to Moses is to want to build three tabernacles for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. It is not to hear what God the Father is saying, listen to my son in whom I am well pleased. It is not to hear even Moses himself who said, God is going to raise another prophet like me and you shall listen to him. So the transfiguration was a picture for us of the relation between the law and the prophets and Jesus. Jesus is not sharing the stage with anybody. That's why God came and overshadowed the law and the prophets. Hear this again. You will miss this. You read this and you miss it. But hear this. I mean Matthew still. Verse 6, 7, 8. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. After the disciples had lifted their eyes, they saw who? Not Moses, not the law, not Elijah, not the prophets. They saw Jesus alone. It is all about Christ alone. That is all that is saying. When you lift up your eyes, you see no one except Jesus himself alone. That's the point. It's all about Christ. If you hear from God, if God teaches you, when your eyes are opened, when your eyes are opened, when you lift them up, you only see Jesus. You are supposed to only see Jesus. 
not the law, not the prophets. Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So what happened after John? He had showed up. Jesus had showed up. And we know John was beheaded. So that was the end of the era of the law and the prophets. Now is Jesus' time. So the law and the prophets all came to an end with the arrival of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as we learned, was the one who was commissioned to prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And even he, whom Jesus said, of all born of a woman, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Even he was sovereignly removed and decreased by God when he was beheaded by Herod. The beheading of John the Baptist was not by accident. It was by the working of God that Christ may increase. This beheading of John is the conclusion that the law has come to its end. That's just an amazing way of teaching. That's sovereignty. Why not just say the law has come to an end, John, go and work in your fields. The Lord has to remove him. And he has to be beheaded to say the law and the prophets have come to their end. But if that is not convincing teaching, we'll go to Apostle Paul, who is going to give us more understanding of the function of the law and its relation to the one who is Christ and to the one who is in Christ. When we are talking about the cessation of the law, we are also saying when Christ came, you who are in Christ have ceased from your works of trying to be good and please God. Because the one who pleases God has come. And you, because you are in Christ, are already pleasing God because of what Christ is doing. That is what we are teaching. Previously, we taught and argued that the law was given to lead us to Christ. That the law was not given to make us righteous, but to bring us the knowledge that we are not righteous and could not be righteous by our own obedience. That the law was given for the accounting of sin, for where there's no law, there's no accounting of sin, you can't be accused or charged of breaking a law that is not there. The law was given to make sin increase. And having done that, to lead us to the one who was and is able to make us righteous, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And once the law had done that to the believer, then it ceases to function. It ceases to have relevance in the life of the believer. The law is not for justification. We are justified in Christ. And the law is not for sanctification. We are sanctified by the working of the Holy Spirit in us. The believer is one who is born again and is indwelled by the Holy Spirit and is described in the scriptures as one who walks according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. From Galatians 3, I argued that the schoolmaster had a temporary function. The so-called tutor. Tutor is not the best translation. The disciplinarian, this person who was a slave, was a disciplinarian to the child who was supposed to be an heir. To the child who was supposed to be an heir. So this schoolmaster had a temporary function in the upbringing of the would-be heir and the law also had this function and relation to those who are in Christ. The schoolmaster's services were not required once the heir had reached maturity and had been trained of the responsibilities of an heir and Paul's conclusion then to that end is in Galatians 3, verses 23 to 28. We talked about it in the previous sermon, and we are going to take another angle and bring more understanding to what Apostle Paul was teaching here. Galatians 3, verses 23 to 28. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. You see, to lead us, there is in italics, which means it's not in the original Greek. It was supplied by the translators to make sense of what the statement is saying. So the original reading would be, therefore, the law has become our tutor to Christ. But either way, the idea is still the same. So that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The law was our tutor to Christ. So that we may be justified by faith and not by works of the flesh. Not by our own obedience before and after we have come to Christ. Now that faith has come through Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the tutor. Now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, we are no longer under the tutor. And the tutor here is the law. We are 
no longer under the authority of the law, but what have we become? Under whose authority are we now? Listen to verse 26 of Galatians 3. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Once the tutor had taught the child and had become the heir and the child had reached the age of maturity, he was recognized as a son. So the apostle says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So if you are sons of God, it means you don't need a tutor. How does one become a son of God? Listen. Through faith in Christ Jesus and that is the end for you. That is the end. The function of the law was to drive you to the realization that you could only acquire the sonship of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That was the purpose of the law. To drive you to the realization that heavenly citizenship can only be acquired through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, Galatians 3. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. All of you who were baptized not in water, who were baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, who were immersed into Christ by the Holy Spirit, had a change of garments. Pay attention to that. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You used to wear the garments of the law, the righteousness of works. You used to adorn the old garments of Moses, but through Christ there was a change of what you were wearing. You now wear the garments of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, which is through faith. When Apostle Paul here is talking about you being clothed with Christ, he is speaking to a Roman cultural practice of wearing certain kinds of clothes. They used to wear Roman citizens what was called a toga, T-O-G-A. And I went and read more from Wikipedia to learn more about the toga wearing in the Roman Empire. In Roman society, when a youth came of age, he was given a special toga, which was a loose-flowing outer garment worn by the citizens of Rome ancient Rome, made of a single piece of cloth and covering the whole body apart from the right arm. So it went like this, like on the shoulder. Listen to this. Free citizens, 
were required to wear togas because slaves would wear tunics. Very important theology. You're going to love this. Apostle Paul, brilliant theologian. Free citizens. Don't miss that. It's only the free citizens who could wear the toga. Slaves wore tunics because they needed more free-flowing clothing so that they could work with ease. They were the working class. Just wearing the tunic was also a sign of poverty. That was also a sign of poverty. Togas were those of royalty. Those who did not work. And so those of us who are clothed in Christ are royalty. That's what Christ is saying. He's saying, now that you are clothed with Christ, you have reached the age of maturity. You are now a free citizen of heaven. And it's only free citizens of heaven who clothe themselves with Christ. Listen to this. The ones who don't wear the togas are slaves. They are working. Anyone who is not in Christ is not wearing a toga. They are wearing the tunics and they are still working for their own salvation. The son who had come of age was given a toga in a ceremony to say, now you have the full rights of family and the state. There were a rite of passage, as it were, as a grown-up son. So that was the rite of passage to say, now you have matured, you have grown, you can take up all the responsibilities and all the privileges that comes from your citizenship in Rome. Hear this about the toga again from Wikipedia. There was a lot that was associated with the toga. The same process that removed the toga from everyday life gave it an increased importance as a ceremonial garment. As is often the case with clothing. So what was happening was increasingly the toga over time became such an important piece of garment that it carried a whole lot of privilege with it. The toga also came to be used to signify different types of power. As early as the 2nd century BC, and probably even before, the toga was looked upon as the characteristic badge of Roman citizenship. It was denied to foreigners and even to banished Romans. And it was worn by Roman magistrates on all occasions as a badge of office. In fact, for a magistrate to appear in a Greek cloak and sandals was considered by all as highly improper, if not criminal. Friend, who let you in here with those garments? If you still remember. Augustus, for instance, was so much incensed at seeing a meeting of citizens 
without the toga. That quoting Vigil's lines, Romans, lords of the world, and the toga wearing race. So this became an identity marker of Roman citizens. And the pride that came with it. And the privileges that came with it. So he gave orders to the elders that in future no one was to appear in the forum without it. Also, listen to this. Because the toga was not worn by soldiers, it was also regarded as a sign of peace. It was also a sign of peace. So what are we to learn from here? There were different kinds of togas, as I said. And each were used differently. But there's this one here that I'm just going to say a few things and then we'll tie the theology of what Apostle Paul is teaching in Galatians. There was what was called the toga virilis. V-I-R-I-L-I-S. It was a plain white toga worn on former occasions by most Roman men of legal age, generally from about 14 to 18 years, but it could only be any stage in their teens. These were also worn by members of the Roman Senate who did not hold a position as a magistrate. The first wearing of the toga virilis was part of the celebrations on reaching maturity. So Apostle Paul, when he comes and says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself. He has most of that in the background. You have now clothed yourself with what? You have clothed yourself with Christ. So the apostle is saying, you are not under the law because if you are under the law, you are a slave. You are a slave, and a slave has no rights in free society. The believer was not under the law. And if you remember, this, the book of Galatians was written to all the churches in Galatia, and this was most likely a Roman province. So they are very aware of what Apostle Paul is insinuating in the background. So they would have known the Roman culture of wearing togas. So one who is clothed with Christ is not a slave, but a son. They are a free citizen of the heavenly country and do not work for their salvation. That's beautiful. That's brilliant. So when you are in Christ, you are identified as one who is wearing a toga. And that statement is saying, God has given you a lot of privileges that you're not even aware of. Just by the fact that you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ Jesus. I'm a preacher <laughs> who happens to be a chemist. And that's a huge problem. But I like to connect things. I like to connect things. This is how the Lord has organized my mind to 
connect things so that I could help someone, you, to connect things to the level that he has connected things for me. And I want to prove to you that when we say that believers are not under the law of Moses, that is not just my invention. It is everywhere in the New Testament. It is a necessary conclusion that one has to reach from working with the teaching and evidence of the scriptures. So we'll go to Romans 7 to finish the argument, even though I could preach five more sermons on it. We'll go to Romans 7, and the Apostle Paul is going to argue the same theology, but in a different way, and say the believer is dead to the law. And he uses the example and experience of common law and what ordinary people know as true about the law of marriage and death. The Romans would have known, because this letter was addressed to the saints at Rome, they would have known the common law and what it said about marriage and divorce. And if they were Jews, they would have known something about the law. So here, Romans 7, verse 1 to 6, and that's going to be our verses to explain that the believer is not under the law of Moses. And it's brilliant theology. Here the apostle, Romans 7 again. Or do you not know, this is an argument that is a discussion that is carried over from Romans 6. That's where it begins. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then... If while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the blood of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness, of the spirit and not in the oddness of the letter. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. The apostle reminds those who are arguing for the continuity of the law of Moses, for the ones who are in Christ. That's the background. 
they are saying there's no way that the Messiah could come and abolish the law of Moses. If you are in Christ, you are saved to observe the law of Moses. And Apostle Paul says, no, you don't get it. I'm going to teach you. So the old covenant has to remain on the believer to the one who is in Christ. That's the argument. And Apostle Paul, as I said, says, no, 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 no. That is not how things work. Let me do an illustration here from your obvious understanding of marriage law. And he says, he addresses this argument to those who understand the law. To those who understand the law of marriage. He says, as a general rule of the law, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as that person lives. Jurisdiction means the official power to make legal, to make binding legal decisions and judgments. So if we say the state of Ohio has no jurisdiction over a matter, we are saying it has no legal right to make a legal judgment or make a decision on a particular matter because the law does not recognize its power in this matter. So the law only is binding on a person as long as that person is alive. If they are dead, then the law ceases to have authority on them. It ceases to have jurisdiction or power over them. The law can't come to your grave and ask for you to appear in court for some unpaid speeding tickets. It can try if it is a foolish law, but to no avail. Now listen to the application of that statement, because that statement in verse 1 is giving you the understanding that you are supposed to carry forward to hear his arguments. Now listen to the application of that statement in verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. The married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is still living. What does that mean? It means when one gets married, they enter into a contract of marriage that should not be broken whilst the other party still lives. It's assumed. In this case, the contract forbids either party from getting married to another while still married to the first marriage. However, the law rec recognizes or gives the freedom for the woman to remarry if what happens? If the husband dies. If and when the husband dies. Since the husband has died, this is what sets the stage 
for the woman to consider entering into another marriage. Since the husband has died, that releases the wife from the contract terms of her old marriage. She now is not bound to her dead husband so as to not marry again. Thus, she is released from the law concerning her husband. She now has the freedom to remarry without being condemned for breaking the law. But now listen to verse 3. So then, this is what would happen if the wife was going to remarry or get married to someone before the husband died. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Hear this. If while her husband is still living, she goes ahead and marries another man, guess what? She has committed adultery. She is an adulteress. And the law requires what? That she be stoned to death. The law requires that she be stoned to death. However, if her husband dies, she is free from the law of her marriage and she is also free from the condemnation of the law. So if she remarries after her husband has died, then she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So this is the illustration that is the basis on which Apostle Paul is going to argue the discontinuity of the law. He's going to say, if there's discontinuity in the law of marriage, so that someone can remarry and not be condemned because their husband died, then there's also discontinuity of the law of Moses when one comes to Christ. Verse 4. Go to verse 4. It's brilliant. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die. You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. Pay attention to that verse. There's a lot of stuff that was said in there. What is the key to this transaction working? This transaction has to happen in a particular order, in a particular way, for you not to get in trouble. That's what Apostle Paul is teaching. He is saying, for this to happen, there has to be death. Without death, no one gets set free from the obligations of their first marriage. So the believer is seen here as having been married to the law before Christ came, whether they like it or not. All who are born of a woman are married to the law 
whether they know it or not. The law still requires the same things whether you know it or you're ignorant of it. You're married to it. However, the law did not die and resurrect. The believer did not die. You are still here. So someone has to die. It's either the law dies or you die. Because you are married to the law. The law is your husband. So one of you has to die. To be set free. Otherwise you are stuck together. You are stuck. And the law is also an abusive husband. And you are stuck with him. Unless something happens. So how is the believer to escape this bad marriage? If the believer has to escape this bad marriage, someone has to die in their place. Someone has to die in their place. How? If you have to escape your marriage to the law, someone has to die in your place. You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So the law of God recognizes that Robert can be dead by the dying of someone else who is not him. The believer died in Christ. Christ died for the believer so as to break the relationship, the marriage that the believer has to the law. The believer died to the law through their union with Christ. Christo, you died to the law. If you are in Christ, you die to the law. You don't even exist in an environment where the law can make demands to you because you died from that area where the law has jurisdiction. The believer died to the law through their union with Christ so that in Christ dying, God considered them too as having died with and in him. You died with and in him. And in the process, severed their marriage to the law. Severed. So you see, the death of Christ is very, very, very important. It is not just for the payment of sins, but it is for the breaking, the severing of the relationship that we had with the law. Listen to the second part of verse 4. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So in the death of Christ, we also died. And not only did we die, but we were set free from the relationship that we had with the law. But why were we set free? We were not just set free just to be free. We were set free that we may be joined to another. Joined to another in a way that does not make you an adulteress or an adulterer. So that we might be joined to another without committing adultery. You have to be free, Brother Robert, to be joined to Christ. 
And you can't join Christ unless you die. But you can't die yet. You have already died in Christ Jesus. <laughs> so the death of Christ is what changes your relationship with the law as far as God is concerned. The death of Christ is also the only way of escape from the demands of the law according to God. And there's no other death that can deliver you from the demands and condemnation of the law. Anybody else can die. The law of God does not recognize them as having died in your place. Only Jesus is recognized by the law of God as having the legal right to enter into your place and dying in your place in a way that God recognizes and sets you free from everything that the law could ever demand from you. So we died in Christ so that we may be joined to him, be married to him. But you can't get married to another who remains dead. If Christ remains dead, you just die to the law, but you still need to be married. If you have to come to God, you still need to be married. And I need you to understand this, that we are talking about spiritual marriage here. Okay? We are talking spiritual things. We are talking the work of salvation. That's what we are talking about. It's not saying that if you're not married, you cannot be joined to Christ. That's not what that is saying. This is an illustration of the work of Christ with respect to how believers have been set free from the law. You can't get married to another who remains dead. Remember, death is central to you being set free from the law. So if you die to the law through the death of another, you still need to get married. And to whom do you get married to? We are joined to him who was raised from the dead. So Christ, not only does he have to die, but he also has to resurrect that he may be married to you. In order that we might bear fruit to God. So being under the law bears fruit, but it bears fruit unto death. But when you are joined to Christ by his death and resurrection, you bear fruit unto God. Verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So this is the problem with the law. If you are under the law, you are always in the flesh. If you are under the law, you are always in the flesh and you always produce one kind of fruit. You always produce one kind of fruit. Death. Because Christ can't do the law. So the law can only condemn him. That's why and that's how the law kills you. The law tells you that you're a sinner 
and the soul that sins, it must die. That's the fruit. That's the wages of sin. That's what he's saying. To bear fruit for death is saying the wages of sin is death. So the problem with being under the law is that you are always in the flesh. And if you are always in the flesh, guess what? That's what the law likes. The law is going to come and arouse all those sinful passions and cause you to sin them all. And when you sin them all, guess what? Death comes. So to be under the law is to be always in the flesh for the sinner. And the sinner here is pictured as having sinful passions which lay dormant, lay sleeping like a dormant volcano. You know those volcanoes that will go for 10, 15 years without erupting, and then suddenly, boom. The law is sin is that which comes and awakens the sin that is lying sleeping in you. Sister Dassel, you have a lot of sin that is lying sleeping. You don't know it until the law comes. When the law comes, it awakens your sin. And you find yourself, did I just say that? Yes, it's you who said it. It was already in you, but it's the law that has awakened your sin. It has aroused your sin so that you may act it. Act it out. Live it out. So the law is constantly poking the sinful passions in the person to awaken them to more sin. And hear what the apostle says. He says, and these passions were not just in the eyes. These passions were not just in the mind. These passions were in all the members of the body. In the totality of the person. So that whatever they did, they bore fruit to death. So we are sinning, whether we close our eyes, I can put you in the dungeon, turn off the lights, throw away the keys, just feed you through a pipe for the next five years, and we just have sinned as if you had spent all that time outside, kicking it. So this is what characterizes your marriage to the law. This is what characterizes your marriage to the law. However, something good happened. Something good happened. Verse 6. Coming to the end. But now we have been released from the law. Having died to that by which we were bound. So that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oddness of the letter. Now we have been released. We have been set free from the law. Having died through Christ to that by which we were bound. Jesus died and resurrected, but the Lord did not die and resurrect. Because we know from Colossians that Jesus nailed the law onto the cross. That ordinance of handwriting that was contrary to us. The law was always contrary to you. 
So Jesus nailed it on the cross. And that's how you also died to the law. But when Jesus resurrected, guess what? The law did not resurrect with Jesus. The law is like one who had been caught by a shark in the water. And then they managed to escape. The shark cannot follow them onto the land. The shark only has power in the water. So the law only had power before you were in Christ. Once you have escaped to Christ, the law can't follow you to Christ. It remains behind. The shark remains behind in the water. And so those who are in Christ have left the sharks in the water. That we may enjoy shark-free life on land. <laughs> the law could not set us free. The law could not set us free. The law cannot set you free, Brother Robert. Brother Guido, the law cannot set you free. Only Christ can set you free. Don't, don't miss this. It said, having died to that which we were bound. We were bound. If you are bound, it means you can't escape. You could not escape from the law. It bound us in such a way that no one could escape from it, but only by death. It is like one who has an incurable disease. Incurable and horrible disease. There's no hope for them. The woman with the issue of blood, she had come to the end of herself. She is running out of money. She has consulted the best physicians in town. And she is at the point of death. And her only hope at this point is death. The man with leprosy, his only hope of escape is if and when he dies. He was bound by his leprosy. He was bound by the law. So that is the picture. That is how you were bound by the law. You could not escape. So in this context, death becomes a huge blessing for you because by it you are able to escape from whatever the law is demanding of you. So you are bound to the law, you are a prisoner, and you need to escape. And one who is bound, as I said, is not free. So someone has to come and set you free. And you can't be set free by your free will. You see, when people talk about free will, they don't know how to read the Bible. Is this text not saying you were bound? So how does one who is bound become free? Your will is bound. You, your, the totality of your person is bound to the law. And unless Christ comes and dies and sets you free, you shall remain bound forever. But listen to this. But now that we have died from the law, that is set free from it and are not in the same realm as it 
We are not in the same sphere or realm as the law. We save in the newness of the spirit and not in the oddness of the letter. Do you see the contrast? There are two ways of serving God. You can serve God in the oddness of the letter or in the newness of the spirit. It's only Christ who can serve God in both the oddness and in the newness. It's only Jesus who can do that. But here we are given a contrast and the apostle is saying you are not going to have one leg in the law and another leg in the newness of the spirit. He says, no, you have to choose. It's either you are in the oddness of the letter or you are in the newness of the spirit. The law remains with those who are not in Christ. If you are not in Christ, the law always makes the same demands. So in this statement of the newness of the spirit and in the oddness of the letter, we are given two ways of serving God. I need you to get that. The oddness of the letter was an inferior way of attempting to serve God because it was detected by the law which we could not do. We were sinful and the law condemned us and so that did not help you. However, there is a better way to serve God. There is a better way to approach God. There is a better and living way that does not condemn. And it is by being in Christ, die to the law in Christ, and serving in the newness of the Spirit. And here there's no gymnastics of making a distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law. Apostle Paul here is not talking about offering animal sacrifices here. He is saying, you as a sinner are not able to do the law of God right, whatever it is. It is the whole law. It is the whole unit. It is the Ten Commandments being at the heart of the old covenant. The oldness of the tablets of stone. So the Apostle Paul has taught us here by this illustration. The discontinuity of the law of Moses on those who are in Christ. And that's what Jesus was saying. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. You are setting your hope in the wrong person. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed in me for he wrote about me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses will accuse you before the Father because they refuse to come to Christ and die to Moses. That's why you have to come to Christ. That's the only way you can be set from the law. That's the only way you can run from Moses. And because they are refusing to come to Christ, it's Moses who is going to condemn them. 
They are refusing to come to Christ that they may die to Moses that they may be married to Jesus. They did not hear from God. As we are going to be learning John chapter 6 and moving forward. They did not hear from God as Peter, James, and John. Who when they heard from God, they got scared and they fell to the ground. But lifting up their eyes, lifting up their eyes, when their eyes were open, they saw no one. They didn't see the law. They didn't see the prophets. They didn't see anybody else except Jesus himself alone. Why would... This is just a weird way of writing. They saw no one except Jesus himself alone. If you write this in class these days, they're like, come see me. What kind of English grammar is that? But this is the grammar of God. They saw no one except Jesus himself alone. If you hear the law right, and I thought of God. There's no other way. There's no one else to see. You see no one except Jesus himself alone. And that's our gospel. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before the throne. Because our eyes have been opened to see Jesus himself alone. As the one to which the law and the prophets pointed. The one with whom the Father is well pleased. And the one to whom we should listen. And he teaches us that we die to the law through his own death. That we may not be bound to the law as we were. That we may not be bound to the law and its condemnation. That we may not be bound to the law and its fruit of death. But now, through the death of Christ, we have been set free from the law. And we have been enjoined to Christ. We have been married to another. Jesus Christ our Lord, that in him we may be clothed with his righteousness, that we may be clothed with the toga as free citizens of heaven, as those who are not slaves anymore, but those who have the name, the sons of God. We have acquired the sonship of God through the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, may you cause your people to understand this, that when we say we are not under the law, we are not saying that those who are saved of Christ are ministers of sin, but we are recognizing the work of your Son. That it is only by his work that we are set free from the demands of the law, and by him we have the righteousness the righteousness that you accept. Lord, we pray and we thank you yet for another wonderful day. We pray for your people 
all the Berean saints, Lord, may you continue to work your fruit in them, the fruit of righteousness, praying, Lord, that you would meet them and grant them whatever is necessary and whatever they need as they grow as your people. And, Lord, to provide for them in all their needs. We pray for all those who are of Christ, who name the name of Christ, wherever they are named. We ask, Lord, that you be gracious to them and continue to give them the testimony of Christ, remembering especially those who are being persecuted for their testimony of Jesus. Lord, we pray and we thank you for this day again. We pray in Jesus' name, asking for your blessing for the days ahead and asking that you would bring as many to hear the resurrection of your son next week. That men may know that it's only by the death and resurrection of Christ that they can be clothed with the righteousness of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.